Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast, our Sabbath School from Home podcast. It's very nice to have some of the restrictions easing, at least here in Tasmania. Um, And we're looking forward to when we can all be back in person again. Until then, we're very much enjoying our discussion of the Psalms and we're extra glad that you are here with us. Uh, Ken, do you want to start with a prayer? Love to. Uh, Lord, uh, great God, and uh, a shepherd, according to the psalm we're going to look at, um, but sometimes feeling apparently distant. Um, We come to you and we look forward to your contribution uh, to our discussion. Uh, We raise it uh, all as a prayer to you. Amen. 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 Our discussion this week is going to be a comparison of two psalms, Psalm 22 and Psalm 23. These psalms were obviously intended to be compared to each other, at least by the person who compiled the book of psalms, because they are right next to each other. There's some interesting themes in here that that we need to explore. I suspect that our discussion may actually be a little too long um, to fit into a single episode, uh, seeing as we've had trouble fitting much smaller psalms than either of these. Uh, into our time limit. So that being so, this discussion will be stretched across two episodes and uh, you'll have to join us next week as we wrap up what we begin today. It also ties in a little bit with the Sabbath School quarterly lesson that talks about prophecy in the Bible because both of these psalms have prophetic content. We both look to them as, as messianic psalms. Locke, do you want to start by reading Psalm 22? Yeah. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will praise you. 
You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. I'm reading Psalm 23 from the NIV. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guards me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Yeah, there's a very different tone between these psalms, isn't there? Yeah, so, I mean, Psalms 23 is is probably the most famous psalm. Uh, On it, I've heard many sermons. I've heard it set to many different tunes. I don't think I've I've ever heard Psalm 22 set to, to a tune. You have heard it, however, those very first words, my God, my God, it's a common exclamation. Oh, my God. Um, we, we, mm. hear it, we hear it all the time. Uh, and I know that we're counseled against taking the Lord's name in vain. Indeed, we're commanded not to take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, but I wonder whether even in that context that we hear it, it's not really taking God's name in vain. I mean, God is as interested in the things that excite us, that shock us, uh, that, that lead to that sort of exclamation as he is in the most profound things, uh, the most profound spiritual and religious things. And uh, there's a sense in which, although I think it's probably used far too commonly, as is the word awesome, but uh, there's a sense in which I don't think God would be terribly upset at being incorporated into everyday experience and while we might unthinkingly call on his name he may well surprise us with an answer every now and again so yes we do hear that first part of the phrase uh, my god my god very regularly and and it was of course most notably used by by Christ on the cross and there's some interesting um I'd like to explore some of the messianic themes in these psalms uh, one thing Locke that Ken and I were discussing this week is Ken sent me a message asking when our recording session would be. And he, he asked, are we psalming tonight? You know, turning the, the noun into the verb. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. What, what would it be to psalm? Mm. And if you look at these two psalms, 
whatever the the action of of reading these prayers or praying these prayers or thinking these thoughts it it encompasses a fairly wide spectrum of of human experience it certainly does one of the things that jumps out at me right here at the start of psalm 22 is yet again reference back to the exodus particularly after those opening verses you know i cry but you do not answer and i find no rest and then in verse 3 the writer of the psalm says, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. So he's sort of indignant because he's saying, I am not having this experience right now, but our stories say that you are the rescuer. And specifically, and specifically, our fathers cried to you and you answered, whereas I have cried to you and received no answer. Yeah. So there's the contrast yeah, exactly. between verse two and verse five because God hears the cry of the Israelites and delivers that's, them. That's right. That's that. That is a big. Uh, we've commented on this before. That's a big element of the opening couple of chapters of the book of Exodus. It's a big element of the theme of Exodus that God hears the cry, and He does it more than just that story in the in the opening parts of the Old Testament. It's a common theme, as it is throughout. And the author here is claiming, and really, I think having a go at God because he's kind of saying, hey, you have set me up to believe and understand that when your people cry out in oppression, that you will come and you will rescue and deliver and answer. But I am crying out. You've forsaken me. You're not answering me. I'm not finding rest. So there's a genuine indignant upset here, especially in the opening verses. I almost felt as I was reading it, as if that that indignant state of mind faded slightly as the psalm progressed. And, and as it got towards the end, it felt as if that particular element of the tone had softened out just a little bit. I'm not sure whether you agree with me. Yeah, in an interesting way, Locke. I mean, as you were describing the sentiment that the psalmist is expressing, this idea that, that God is not behaving as he has seemingly promised... I, I was reading verse 4 of, of Psalm 23. I will fear no evil, for your rod and your staff comfort me. That's obviously in direct contrast to what's happening in Psalm 22. In terms of the, the change of tone, even then it's it's quite interesting. I don't think that by the end of the psalm that David is confident that God will intervene in his particular trials or immediate circumstances. The emphasis seems to be on refocusing on a broader picture. This idea that what's happening now will make sense to future generations Mm. seems to be expressed. All all the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. This is in verse 29. Even those who can't keep themselves alive, even the ones for whom their, their life has a sad ending. Well, indeed, that's all of us, isn't it? who cannot keep ourselves alive. None of us can. I was watching an interview this week with uh, Michael J. Fox, the actor from Back to the Future, who at the age of 39 was diagnosed with Parkinson's. And uh, it ended his career, although he started acting again recently. And he was just talking about his experience. And he was talking about he, he started a foundation raising funds for Parkinson's research. And... He was talking about advances that have been made and his, his treatments have improved to the point where he can he can sit up in a chair now and be involved in some acting. He's, he's acted in a TV series act, playing the role of someone with Parkinson's. 
designated um, survivor. Talk- yeah, but he he's talking about these small steps forward, and and then you know he made an interesting comment. He said, you know, we're trying a whole bunch of things with the, with the foundation and the research that we're funding. Our latest emphasis is on finding markers so that we can identify who who is likely to develop Parkinson's before they develop it, before damage has been done to the neural structures so that we can prevent deterioration. And he said, you know, I, that would be just fantastic. And he's obviously a person for whom that sort of technology would would be too late. But he's got he had a mind for something beyond his immediate circumstances. And I get that sort of sense out of Psalm 22. I, I don't think the psalm ends with any sort of real confidence that God's about to step in and intervene and fix David's immediate problems. And indeed, when one compares that thought of the psalmist here, David, with those who were directly involved in the Exodus, neither did they have that confidence. Indeed, their response, even very shortly uh, after the Red Sea experience, or before the Red Sea experience, was, well, why have you brought us out here to die? Where are you? And it's interesting, the message translates that uh, verse 1, why are you so far from helping me? Why did you dump me miles from nowhere? So that they didn't see the deliverance as being something that lasted long and a long time or even that was going to be effective in the moment. That seems to be the psalmist's experience. It's not a deliverance that I am perceiving uh, at this moment. Uh, and maybe that's a common human experience. Our immediate circumstances are so imminent. I mean, obviously, in a, that's sort of the definition of what imminent means, but they're so real. They're such a difficult thing to see beyond. Maybe one aspect of the verb to psalm means to take your present thoughts and feelings, however irrational they are, and just present them to God. Mm. Or however rational they may seem to you and present them yeah. to God. Yeah. There there are certainly parts of this that strike me as, as less than fully rational, and absolutely understandably so. I'm not really having a, a, a stab at the author at all. But one is puzzling me. Verse 21 of Psalm 22 suddenly seems to switch it's almost as if it's almost as if in the process of pouring out this complaint this indignant questioning of god's lack of action the the author stumbles upon a realization that he's probably exaggerating because if you if you look verses 19 20 and 21 but you O lord do not be far off O you my help, come quickly to my aid, deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog, save me from the mouth of the lion. Those are all requests. These are things you are not doing, God, but I want you to do these things. And then suddenly, the second half of verse 21, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Why Why does that switch? Is that This is in the ESV. What do other translations do here with that phrase at the second half of verse 21? Mine just says, save me from the horns of the wild oxen. It doesn't say you have. But there's ah. a footnote. There's a footnote that says, or you have. Mm. And the new uh, Revised Standard Version uh, certainly draws that temporal distinction. The request, save me from the mouth of the lion, uh, do that now. And then from the horns of the wild oxen, you have rescued me. For that matter, God has rescued David from the mouth of the lion as well. 
if you remember in First Samuel 16, I think it is, David and Goliath, when David is really pushing Saul hard and his brothers, and it's, an, it's a well-written story. It's, it's really funny. There's, there's, there's little nuances, and David is referred, for instance, as a young boy, um, as a small boy. He's got ruddy cheeks. All of these descriptions of a, of a real youth all the way through the story. He's just a mere... You can't fight Goliath. You're only a boy. Um, uh, and then at the end of the story, after he's beaten Goliath, Saul turns to his aide and says, who, who is that young man? And David's been promoted, you see, from a mere boy to a young man. Um, <laughs> and there's, there's all sorts of fun nuances. Uh, but the one thing that David pulls out in the story is... I don't have to fear Goliath because the Lord has saved me from the lion and the bear. In fact, he says, you know, while I was tending the sheep, a lion came and tried to take the sheep and I grabbed it by the beard and smote it. <laughs> and the Lord delivered me from the lion and the bear. That's a really plucky 10-year-old, Cam. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but isn't that an interesting perspective, though? You see, I grabbed it by the beard and smote it and the Lord delivered me from the lion. Uh, there wasn't some miraculous intervention independent of David's action in that case. There was a, there was a working together. And sometimes I think we expect that the, the, the miracles uh, will be something that we just sit back and watch. And of course, there's times when that may be true. And we but David was also told, to, uh, you know, take the army and and then stand and wait and see what the Lord will do. Uh, mm. So there are occasions when one has to do that. But there's often joint work to be yeah. done that God gives us the privilege of doing. I've just found the passage. I think our next podcast series will have to be on the life of David. It's just too good. It's such a great story. The exact words in my translation are, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. And then you're right, Ken. He finishes by saying, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. My son used to love me to read him the story of uh, David and Goliath, and he always wanted it not from the um, the Bible story collection by Arthur Maxwell. Uh, he wanted it direct from the uh, translation in the Bible, the New International Version, and he would insist uh, that I continue the story until the part where David chopped off Goliath's head with his own sword. Ah. Yeah. So it always had to, we had to go at least until there. Even then, Ken, that, that verse has some difficulties because there's, speaking of two passages of Scripture that, that introduce a conflict, let me find the passage. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. And then, sorry, I read the wrong verse. That was verse 51. Verse 50. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he killed the Philistine. And then the very next verse, it says, David pulled out the Philistine's sword and killed him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a, I mean, we can save uh, all of those interesting insights for our next podcast series on the life of David. But my wife Clancy preached a sermon on specifically the David and Goliath story based around a really interesting idea that she had that I haven't heard or other places relating to that episode of him rejecting Saul's armor. And it's an interesting one for you and the listeners to just ponder a little bit. The idea is this. I have always heard in the 
Arthur Maxwell Bible stories and children's stories sorts of versions, this emphasis on David being a young boy and that the armour didn't fit. But if I recall this sermon correctly, there is no mention in the Bible that the armour didn't fit. And what Clancy raised was the idea that there could be something more subtle going on there. When Saul was anointed first king of Israel, how was he described? He was head head and shoulders shoulders above everyone else. There is a giant come to challenge not only Israel, but specifically the God of Israel. And Saul as king is the Israelite giant. And he's abrogating responsibility. And when he says to David, here, where my, where my armor, where my armor, is it possible that he's trying to ask David to represent Saul? And David says, no, I represent God. I'm not going mm. to go as you. And I am not representing the, the idea that was in this sermon well enough, uh, but it, I'm throwing it out there as something to just get your, your mental gears churning. Think about it, play with it, and see what you think of that idea as you go back and read the story. Yeah, it's worth reading. It's a great story. It's worth contrasting with this psalm too, because that confidence that David expresses when he faces Goliath, he may not be 10 years old, but he's fairly youthful. He's just got all that. Maybe he's just an arrogant teenager. I don't know. Uh, I don't think so. The way the story is told definitely suggests he had an an authentic faith uh, in God. But certainly the the sentiment there is, is very different from this you know, many bulls surround me, the strong bulls encircle me, the roaring lions tearing their prey, they open their wide mouth. All my bones are out of joint, my heart has turned to wax, it's melted away. Yeah, the David in, in the story of Goliath is much more like Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In contrast to the David of Psalm 22, and here I am, a nothing, an earthworm something to step on and to squash. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting that the pink I mean that that imagery there's a lot of animal kingdom imagery through here the the threats that he describes are not direct military threats the threats that he describes in Psalm 22 are predominantly using meta animal metaphors for those political or military or or other threats that are attacking him. That's interesting on its own. But the, the verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, it, it suggests that there is, what is happening here is this perception that God has forsaken him has led to a real substantial shift in his image of himself, of his own value. It's causing him to question who he is and why he matters and what he's worth in a fairly profound way. Mm. One can imagine the confidence that a soldier needs to have and David you know Saul's killed his thousands David's kills his tens of thousands how much uh, skill in the art of death perhaps that it is uh, and confidence uh, does there need to be uh, in somebody like that and uh, compare that uh, to the um, uh, the words in verse 14 in the message I'm a bucket kicked over and spilled Every joint in my body is being pulled apart. My heart is a blob of melted wax in my gut. I'm dry as a bone, my tongue black and swollen. They've laid me out for burial in the dirt. A very different self-image to that which would be needed on the battlefield, one might think. Yeah. I don't know if our listeners are fond of the original Snoopy cartoons, but 
It's the contrast between the Charlie Brown and the Lucy. And Lucy's supremely confident in all situations. And Charlie Brown is fraught with self-doubt and low confidence and everything else. It, David's enemies get a look in, though, in Psalm 23 as well, uh, in verse 5, celebrating God's involvement in his life. David says, you know, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. David is specifically pleased because God has intervened in a public way in front of those who disapprove of him. I'm not sure if I'm completely comfortable with that. I I understand the discomfort, um, and I'm not exactly sure where I came across this idea, but I thought it was quite lovely. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Well, put that in the light of how Jesus says we ought to treat uh, our enemies, and God's provision is so great uh, that not only do we have a meal for ourselves, but we have a meal that we can uh, share uh, even with our enemies. Yeah, I guess there's, there's no, it doesn't explicitly say the enemies are excluded from the meal, does it? No, indeed it's in their direct presence and it's not so much necessarily thumbing your nose at them. It's, hmm. uh, it's an overflowing abundance that's provided by God. Well, the lesson this week is about prophecy in the Bible. It doesn't deal very much with messianic prophecy. Instead, choosing, I think, to dwell on some of the um, emphases that we enjoyed the Adventist church because they set us apart. But you would surely have to say that any prophecy that points to the person of Christ is is well deserving of study and attention. Um, And both of these psalms have a prophetic tone to them. What elements can you see in, in, in each of these psalms that speak of the person of Christ? Oh, 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 can I answer that one? Yes. Uh, well, of course, verse 1. Uh, they're the words on the cross, aren't they? Oh, just hang on. The verse 1 of which psalm, Ken? Uh, 20, I, 22. I they both qualify. Ah, oh, well, they probably do, but I'm going with 22. Okay, well, I'm going with 23. I think, I think that the Lord is my shepherd is obviously a, a, a title that Christ takes for himself. But your verse 1 is very different, Ken. I wonder, are the people who read these psalms, did they imagine that both of these verses described or would be fulfilled in in one person? Indeed, within the one psalm, uh, if one's looking at it messianically, then Jesus on the cross uh, was both the one abandoned by God and later... Uh, in Psalm 22, within the uh, the very same psalm, God is uh, pointed out as the one who is holy and enthroned on the praises of Israel. In verse 6, is it? Uh, no, verse 3. And I thought that was an interesting contrast, actually, to see between the uh, God as my shepherd, um, on the one hand, and uh, and God holy and enthroned. They, they, they seem to me to be two quite different vocations well metaphor is is a very messy thing when you start trying to pin it down isn't it because even in the shepherd metaphor christ identifies himself as the shepherd but he is also of course the passover lamb Mm. Uh, he is the one sheep of the flock that is that's sacrificed that's not protected by the shepherd it actually gets more complicated than that cam because if you look back into the day of atonement rituals from the old testament sanctuary system it can get really messy indeed obviously the adventist church does like to look back to that topic but 
But where do you find Jesus in that? There's a high priest. Jesus is our high priest. There's a sacrificial lamb. Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. There's a scapegoat who takes the sins of the people out of the camp. Jesus washes away the sins of the world with his blood. Um, I hope I'm not being too flippant if I suggest that perhaps Jesus is everywhere in the Day of Atonement. Yeah, uh, there's there's other elements. I mean, the the ones that the that people pull out of Psalm 22 and quote most often are those very specific phrases. Uh, I mean, it's it's cited in the New Testament. The uh, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. I think is referred to in the Gospels as a commentary on the crucifixion. Uh, there's another one in here that's quite a specific one. Uh, well, there's they have pierced my hands and feet. Psalm yes, 22, verse yes. 16. Yes, that's um, the one I was looking for. Dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. That's mm. that's interestingly specific, certainly in the light of, of the New Testament. The, the thing is, though, that there are other things that are very specific too, such as verse 12, many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, and, and that didn't happen, mm. at least not to the person of Christ. Uh, so to what extent is... Is are these specific phrases we we pull out just opportunistic rereading of old texts? Because we we pick out this part and that verse and this verse and that verse and say, isn't it incredible that they describe what happens so so precisely? And then we say of these other verses, isn't it amazing how well they they capture the essential meaning of the crucifixion, but but not describe the specific events? And we sort of have it both ways. Well, this is very interesting that you ask this because it does actually touch very much on on a rhetorical question that is asked in the introduction to this week's Sabbath school lesson discussion in the pamphlet. It quotes John 14, And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass you may believe. And then the lesson makes this makes this statement. The crucial question is, how do we interpret prophecy correctly so that we know when the prophecy has indeed come to pass an interesting thought process and i think that it ties in with what you're asking here cam the clearly some of the authors of parts of the new testament felt in experiencing the crucifixion event as a as an absolutely central component of their system of thinking that that grew up as followers of jesus that they genuinely felt that they had seen these things come to pass as they read some of this Psalm 22. We do this selection in other Messianic prophecies as well. The prophecy that talks about Bethlehem being the birthplace of Christ goes on to describe this Messiah figure as a military leader. And we, I think, do the Pharisees a disservice when we suggest that they were somehow deliberately scheming and dishonest in their expectation that the Messiah would be a military leader. The reason they thought that is because that's what it says in a whole bunch of places. And they were very obviously in need of one, being under the thumb of Rome. And indeed, when we interpret uh, so much uh, prophecy, we engage in that very process that the Pharisees engaged in. They didn't get it right. Uh, We ought to be careful that we don't have misplaced confidence in what we think the interpretation should be. Yes, Snoopy once writes a book on theology 
and the book is entitled Have You Ever Once Thought That You Could Be Wrong? <laughs> um, which, which is a complicated question because obviously we're, we're called to a life of faith. We, faith is not a phenomenon that's exclusively tied to religious experience. I have faith in my friends. An expectation that they've got my best interests at heart and hopefully me theirs, that's what a friendship is. It goes beyond evidence, um, our faith in in other people. And uh, we, we are called to have that sort of faith in God. And indeed, you, you, you could look for the opposite evidence uh, and you could probably find it to say that, yes. well, this person is not my friend. Yeah, if you went looking for it, yes. And people who are expert at harbouring grudges are, are phenomenally capable of, of finding evidence that people don't like them. Indeed, perse- persecutory delusions yes. often have their, their basis in that assumption. So we're in this situation where we're called to a life of faith. At the same time, though, we have to acknowledge that other people who also felt the call to live a life of faith have been genuinely deluded. Mm. And the Pharisees were no sort of lightweight, casual religious people. They were, they were into it heart and soul, memorizing large passages of Scripture, de- devoting themselves with, with a level of discipline which far exceeds mine and a commitment to learning, and and they got it wrong. But Paul himself takes, I think, he specifies it as pride um, in his heritage as a Pharisee. Um, it, was a, it was something that provided him with uh, a very firm scriptural foundation. I wonder, it's occurring to me, that one of the things that can go wrong is if you is if you lose focus on the feeling and the experience and I, and I'm 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 aware that this is going to sound incredibly sort of postmodern and disconnected from absolute truth but if you disconnect and lose your awareness of the feeling and the the power of some of these passages and you shift your focus entirely to trying to pinpoint what in them is true or what in them is, you know, specifically come to pass or not come to pass, almost invariably you're going to come a bit unstuck. And and I'm aware that in saying that, sometimes our Adventist emphasis on certain thinking when it comes to reading pro- prophecy has led to us ending up sounding very similar to the way that the Pharisees were so sure that they knew the right way to understand some of the the messianic pictures that they studied carefully and and i i don't know of a really good way to resolve this because we are called to to study these things and we are expected to think about these things but it is so easy and tempting for them to to end up taking hold of us and and actually becoming the barrier that prevents us from being genuinely open to the spirit one of the problems is that it's so tempting to celebrate secret knowledge this is that you know the the five-year-old who walks into a room and says i've got a secret and it's just <laughs> desperate it's just desperate for someone to ask them what the secret is so that they can tell it to them you know make sure you tell everyone it's a secret this being on the in and everyone else being on the out is specifically the thing that christ criticizes the pharisees for yeah that feeling is a hundred percent 
prevalent in the Adventist church? It's, um, hello, everyone, by the way. Hello. Sorry for being late. Good to hear you, Luke. It's very good to be here. I'm glad I, I made it in time. Couldn't help but jump in, Cam, and say it's not just Christ criticizing the Pharisees. There's a whole string of prophets who criticize the priesthood of their time for this same crime. You can look in Isaiah 58 um, or uh, Micah chapter 6, I think, and, and, and more than a few others who level a very similar accusation. Uh, and, and often using the same sort of language. It's maybe maybe save that for a, a day when we cover those those books and chapters. But it's it's a recurring theme throughout the Bible. Yeah, the Bible is very against. That's this not right. Uh, what I'm saying is a slight exaggeration. The Bible is against organized religion. <laughs> yeah. Um, well done. That's all we have time for today. Christian. Yeah, Christian. <laughs> What I mean is Christianity is a very irreverent religion in the sense that a huge amount of skepticism is generated, is obviously intended by the people who compiled the the Bible. We should have a skepticism about our collective capacity to stay on the right track. Mm. Well, I think it's really interesting. Um, This is something that I had never heard growing up and I'd never really even considered before. Um, but a, a friend of my wife's, who's a theologian, an Adventist theologian in the U.S., um, I talked to her at one point um, about, and this was from her that I was getting this concept, about about the role, the separate but equally important role that the priesthood and the prophets play in the Bible. Very often, you, you have the priesthood, which is the established religious authority, you have the prophets who are completely outside of it and whose job very often, it seems, is to speak truth to the power of that priesthood. Hmm. But, but both of them play a role in the spiritual health of Israel. This is really, really good stuff, Luke. I really agree. I've heard it described a little bit similarly. And when you, when you stop to read some of what we call the minor prophets in the Old Testament. I don't call them that. You you do realize how powerful and outside and unconventional the messaging of a lot of these prophets was. If you're asked to lie on your side for six months and cook food with your own poo, <clears throat> I think that definitely qualifies as being outside, which, which for any reader who's not familiar is something that God asked Ezekiel to do. Uh, you're definitely outside the religious mainstream. There's a hymn that we sing about Jesus being prophet and priest and king. And I suspect that most Christians are quite are quite comfortable with the idea of Jesus as king, as having power and God being on a throne. And that, that bit's easy to get our head around. Jesus as priest is also reasonably straightforward to get our head around because the priest is the is the sort of center of the mediation, the formal mediation, the ritual mediation between God and his people. And Jesus being priest is so excellent in that it's God coming to mediate himself to us. That's beautiful and excellent. And I'm not diminishing it. I'm just saying that it's a little easier to wrap our head around. But to wrap our head around, honestly wrap our head around Jesus as prophet, Jesus as a unconventional as an outsider coming in with a strong message that often Looking at the people upends, in power. 
Exactly. It, it reevaluates and upends the power structures. Prophets typically came in and had positive and affirming things to say about those on the out, but had pretty devastating things to say to those who were in power, but abusing that in order to maintain their superiority over the people who were out. And when you hear C.S. Lewis write about Aslan not being a tame lion, I think of the 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 only senses in which Jesus and God is not tame are these prophetic elements of that character. The priest is very tame because it's it's so constrained by the by the the rituals, the rules, the system, and the king is moderately tame because because the king is the power structures. It's the prophet who is absolutely not tame and who is who is wild to the point of being uncomfortable at times especially uncomfortable if you are that that established status quo yeah the the corruption that Christ calls out though is is of an interesting sort the pharisees were not perceived as being corrupt this is not you know an oppressive ruler this is not a Jezebel who very obviously is oppressing the people underneath her uh, the pharisees particularly, were not so much involved in governance. The Sadducees were the ones mainly involved with governing the temple. And the Pharisees were the more devout. Ah, that's not quite true. Sadducees were definitely a bit liberal. The Pharisees were the, it's, it's the pillars of the, of the faith, maintaining standards sort of people in the community. And, you know, when Christ suggests that it may be difficult for some of these people to be saved the pharisees are sorry the disciples are flabbergasted and the pharisees are outraged you know you, what are you suggesting that we need a doctor and christ said well if you knew that you needed a doctor you wouldn't need one half as bad as you do now so people genuinely thought these these were good people so if you wanted to know what it felt like to have christ in the room you must imagine the person you esteem most in your community as a as a real authentic adventist they eat nut meat they observe the Sabbath, they collect for Adra, they uh, do all the right Adventist things. And imagine Christ walking in the room. This is hypothetical. Obviously, there are many good Adventists. This might not apply to all of them. But to get a feeling for what it would, would have felt like, imagine Christ walking in the room and pointing at that person saying they're a whitewashed tomb. <laughs> and that sense of shock is the sort of shock that people had to put up with if they wanted to hang around Christ. And and this is a you, you're saying it very well. Um, this is what I was trying to communicate. That is the sense of shock that comes in the Old Testament from the prophets, but not from priests. Hmm. So when when we sing of Jesus as being our prophet and priest and king, and not just sing of it, but when we when we actually seriously conceptualize Jesus as as being a fulfillment and a completion in many ways of those different characteristics. Uh, we we have to be open to acknowledge this is this is one of the key elements and functions of Jesus's ministry. Yes, yeah. I've got a question. Getting back to the the Pharisees reading some of these Old Testament texts, and obviously they they would have been quite happy. They would have seen when Christ identified himself as the shepherd, as a good shepherd. They would have been thinking of Psalm twenty three. They may have not perhaps seen the messianic significance of Psalm twenty two. But they obviously, from other texts, ones we've referred to, which refer to the Messiah as a military figure, and there, there are several, they expected the Messiah, this is the charge we level at them, they thought that the Messiah was going to, be, it was going to free them from the Romans. 
Did they actually want the Messiah to come? Did, did they want the Messiah that they believed in to come, even if their belief was wrong? Did they want a deliverance from the Romans? And the verse that I find most illuminating is John eleven forty eight, And it's when they're having a council. And I think that this council, I think these are the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Sadducees were the ones put in positions of power, at least, within the temple. The chief priests and the Pharisees. Okay. So the chief priests were people put into that position by the Romans. And there's a, there's a, the, a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Yeah. And they say, this guy's a real worry. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Oof. So do they actually believe that God is capable of sending them someone who could deliver them from the Romans? Do they even want it to happen? I have to say, sitting in Hong Kong right now, that strikes a lot closer to home than you'd expect <laughs> a verse from 2,000 <laughs> years ago to, to strike. There's a lot of truth in the way people react to threats that is mm. consistent across all of human history. And, yeah. and I'm not sure that this is what you were getting at, uh, Luke, but it occurs to me that Jesus was a disruptor of the power base. And whether that's the religious power base, as he was talking to the chief priest or, or that the chief priests and the Pharisees seem to have been worried about, or whether it's the power that we exercise in our everyday lives. We, I hate that phrase, everyday lives. What other sort of lives do we have? But uh, the, the, the the sort of power that we that, that we exercise in doing our day to day activities. There you are. There's another phrase that I don't like because what other activities do we have? Um, uh, but anyway, I'll, let, let's let's get away from my pet peeves. Uh, we all exercise power in our own way. Supervising PhD students, determining the allocation of resources, deciding whether to remove somebody's liberty from them um, or whether to impose a financial burden on them we all have power and and what would Jesus be saying to us and how is it that we would seek to avoid the disruption to the power that we exercise I think there's time for really important self-reflection mm. about that because I can criticize lots of the religious leaders within my own denomination for the things that I disagree with them about and uh, yeah. and point the finger and say, uh, there you are, you're just trying to hold on to the institutional power base and promote your own particular view of scripture and, and prophetic yeah. interpretation, but bring it back to me and what when I'm exercising power. This is the trap, isn't it, Ken? The, the Pharisee looks at the tax collector and says, Oh, thank God I'm not like the tax collector. And he's scolded for that by Christ. And we look at the Pharisee and we say, well, at least I'm glad I'm not a Pharisee. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then we're caught. The, the, the thing that made me, this verse in John, it made me think of, there was the disciples, it was Peter, wasn't it, who drew a sword and, and struck down yes. the servants in the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples also thought Christ would be a military leader, but they were willing to give it a go. Mm. At, at personal risk. The l- religious leaders thought Christ would be a, r- a military leader and they weren't willing to risk it. They said he could raise up a rebellion and if it goes wrong, the Romans are going to take away our temple. 
Not not um, if it goes wrong. It, I think they're saying when it when it uh, fails. You're you're right, Luke. They're saying it, w- it will no, fail, and the no Romans... doubt in their minds. It, so what what if the thing that was at stake, the difference between the disciples and the Pharisees, was not the correctness of their interpretation of Scripture? What if it was their willingness to risk themselves? What if it was their willingness to let the Scripture dictate the course of their lives? And the disciples were willing to let that happen, and the Pharisees weren't. Cam, that's a fantastic challenge for us all to think about. There's certainly more for us to compare here between Psalm 22 and Psalm 23, but that's going to have to wait for next week. And if you have any comments that you'd like to throw in for us to discuss about these psalms, or if you'd like to suggest another psalm for us to look at, reach out to us with an email to sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us next week.